When you take a look through the history of some of the best strikers in MMA, there's been standout Muay Thai practitioners like Anderson Silva, or guys like Jose Aldo who also held world championships. Some karate guys like Lyoto Machida and George St. Pierre were able to translate their art into the world of cage fighting. But where are the boxers? Not just those that trained in the sport, the world champions, K1 champions like Mirko Krokop, but from the world of boxing. In fact, more so than anything else, when it comes to learning striking for MMA, especially in recent years, it's those trained in kickboxing that have seemingly taken over the sport. And no! Over him with the knee! And the overhand right from the ring! Oh, that's it! That is it! Sean O'Malley! But why kickboxing? Grapplers and wrestlers have, of course, had enormous success inside of the cage. But part of the reason they've been able to make this transition into MMA is because of the guidance and tutelage of legends from the kickboxing world. Guys like Mike Winklejohn, Henry Hoof, and of course, Javier Mendez, who really built MMA's first super gym, the American Kickboxing Academy, where he passed the lineage of kickboxing to so many of the sports superstars past and present. As you can tell, it's Frank, Frank there, Kung Lee, another one of my guys was Kung Lee. He was Josh Thompson earlier on. But how did we get here? Where did kickboxing even come from? Well, to answer that question, my friends, we have to dive deep, real deep. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and this is the evolution of kickboxing in MMA. So I suppose the best place to start is, well, at the beginning. Of course, kicking and punching each other is pretty much ingrained in the evolution of the human race, but the first known depiction of two guys punching, kicking, kneeing, and elbowing each other comes from ancient India and Sanskrit scrolls describing the Mutsi Yuda, which literally means fist combat. So yeah, we're talking about two and a half thousand years ago. It's then expected that these arts traveled along the Indosphere and became the base for a lot of Southeastern Asian martial arts styles like Muay Thai. What really birthed kickboxing though was developed from Chinese martial arts and made its way to the island of Okinawa around the 14th century, which leads us right into chapter one, the birth of formal karate. Now, I know it sounds like an unlikely story that one of the most dominant striking arts in MMA was born from one that, well, let's face it, hasn't had a ton of success in the sport, but it was the same limitations of karate that would be a catalyst for change that would soon sweep the globe. Continued cultural exchanges with the Chinese developed varying styles of karate in Okinawa, but it wasn't until 1905 where it had reached the mainland and Yasusuni Itosu began teaching karate in schools. By 1936, a dude by the name of Gichin Funakoshi began developing a system of sparring which eventually led to the first karate match rules tournament in 1957. It was also around this time that the West were being exposed to Asian martial arts for the first time. Men like Edward William Barton Wright had traveled to Japan and brought back traditional arts like jiu-jitsu and developed his own martial art, bar titsu, creative, I know. But in pop culture novels like the James Bond series, James, an expert in unarmed combat, was completely ignorant to this martial art called karate. Classic villain Goldfinger tells Bond, have you ever heard of karate? No? Well, Odd Job is one of the three in the world who have achieved the black belt in karate. Yeah, that's right, the black belt. Psh, as if Bond needed any karate to take bad guys down. 
But it was Robert Trias, a championship boxer in the US Navy who had served in the Solomon Isles during World War II, who met a Chinese missionary who introduced him to the world of martial arts. And in 1945, he brought the art of karate back to America and founded the first US karate school in 1946. Two years later, he established the United States Karate Association, and that was just the beginning of something that would change the martial arts world forever. Meanwhile, in Japan, there were karate practitioners who weren't convinced by the current rule set. They wanted something a bit more realistic, especially as Muay Thai was just across the ocean. Friendly sort of bout, isn't it? One thing, they say they always have an ambulance ready. A karate practitioner named Tatsuo Yamada had become interested in Muay Thai and the idea of full contact fights, because why wouldn't you? His son had previously sparred with the Muay Thai champion and Yamada started working with him to develop a new art he called karate boxing. Yeah, it just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Well, another man named Osamu Noguchi got wind of this. Noguchi's father had been one of the most prominent boxers in Japan and when he died, he inherited his gym. He began promoting the fights himself until he was barred from the sport for fixing championship matches. In Japan, never! Either way, when he heard about Yamada, trying to cross karate with Muay Thai, he liked the idea and began studying both art forms himself. And what exactly did he call this new martial art? That's right, my friends, kickboxing. A new combat sport was born and in 1963, Osamu organized a truly historical event at the Lumpini Boxing Stadium in Thailand. Three karate fighters took on three Muay Thai fighters in the first of many showdowns that would take place across the next 20 years. The Thai fighters were only allowed to kick and punch and the karate guys actually came out on top winning two of the three fights, but uh, it was wasn't exactly the best Muay Thai had to offer, and it sparked a feud that would rage for several years because of this. Noguchi continued to train fighters in the new sport of kickboxing and even allowed frozen headbutts at first to further distinguish it from Muay Thai. Four months later though, in June of 1963, he sent Tadashi Sawamura to fight the number one Thai boxer in Thailand, Sama S. Adesong. And this time, things didn't go well for kickboxing. And effectively, in a single moment, Adesong changed the course of kickboxing and karate history forever. Osamu continued to promote events and in 1966 founded the Japan Kickboxing Association. They had weight classes and champions and the movement would snowball into something that completely took over the Japanese sporting world. But in America, something entirely different was happening. So, chapter two, US Sport Karate. After forming his gym and the Karate Association, Robert Trias held the first known karate tournament staged on US soil in 1955. It was called the Arizona Karate Championships. How does any of this relate to MMA? Well, almost the entire lineage of the sport of kickboxing in America can pretty much be traced back to Trias and his gym. In 1963, Trias and one of his students, John Kean, hosted the first ever World Karate Championships at the Chicago Fieldhouse in July. People came from all over the country to watch and participate, even guys like Ed Parker, the founder of America. American Kempo helped officiate the event. The following year, in 1964, Parker gave birth to the Long Beach International Karate Championships, which was a landmark event for sport karate in the US. The likes of Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis, and even future UFC commentator Superfoot Bill Wallace took part. This was also where the martial arts world was introduced to Bruce Lee for the first time. Well, the karate punch is like an iron bar, whack. A kung fu punch is like an iron chain, with an iron ball attached to the end and it go wang and it hurt inside. 
1968, the first World Professional Karate Championships took place, organised by Jim Harrison. He invited eight of the best non-contact fighters in America to take part. Harrison's concept was to film the proceedings on videotape and use it as a pilot for a regular weekly or monthly series. Joe Lewis, a student of Bruce Lee, would take first place and become karate's first professional athlete, getting paid the total sum of $1. You know, just to make it official. But kind of hilariously, Harrison lost the videotape and fate possibly changed the course of the professional sport forever. Competitions then continued to pop up all across America as karate kind of took off, but they were unregulated by the government. A lot of them were really unorganized. And while some allowed heavy contact, it didn't take long before members of the community began to express their desire for full contact fights. So that takes us to chapter three, American kickboxing. So remember Robert Trias's student, John Kean? Well, turns out this guy was one of the craziest, wildest, and quite possibly most insane characters in martial arts history. He'd become disillusioned with the idea of conventional karate and wanted to focus on what he felt was street effective. To be fair, he was from Chicago. In 1967, he legally changed his name to Count Dante. Supposedly, his family was Spanish royalty that had fled to Ireland during the Civil War. But I don't know. Seriously, we could do a whole video on this guy. I mean, he developed the Dante system, the deadliest of all martial martial arts. He took out advertisements in the back of comic books as the deadliest man alive, and you could buy his instructional booklet, The World's Deadliest Fighting Techniques, which was described as, and I quote, the deadliest and most terrifying fighting art known to man and without equal. Its maiming, mutilating, disfiguring, paralyzing, and crippling techniques are known by only a few in the world. An expert at Dim Mac could easily kill judo, karate, kung fu, aikido, and gung fu experts at one time with only fingertip pressure using his murderous poison hand weapons. Instructing you step by step through each move is none other than Count Dante, the deadliest man who ever lived. He was also a hairdresser and yeah, basically became the inspiration for the plot of the Zohan. Maybe. Don't sue me, Sandler. Anyway, of course he was hated by the martial arts community at large, not just because he was obviously a complete lunatic, but he organized and promoted tournaments without padding and with a focus on how much damage you could dish out and how much you could take. Sound familiar? They called him a threat to the development of karate in the US. Dante was quoted saying, the streets are where you learn whether you can fight, not tournaments where they pull their punches. I know plenty of guys who have black belts who couldn't defend themselves when they got into a street fight. As loopy as this guy was, I mean, he clearly had the right idea about martial arts though. Just maybe wasn't going about it in the right way. But as it turned out, he wasn't the only man who thought karate competition just wasn't real enough. Joe Lewis, the winner of the first professional tournament, was frustrated with the rule set and also thought it was all about mysticism and not real fighting. In 1969, promoter Lee Faulkner reached out to Joe about taking part in his karate tournament. He told him he'd retired from point fighting and wanted Lee to find him an opponent that would fight to the KO. He called this new sport full contact fighting. In January 1970, Joe Lewis took on Greg Baines in the first ever kickboxing bout in North America. What you're about to witness here is history in the making. They wore 12-ounce gloves and were allowed to wear shoes if they wanted, but no kicks to the head or groin were allowed. But when they were announced, they were called American kickboxers instead of full-contact fighters, and the name kind of stuck. Lewis KO'd him in the second round, combining his boxing prowess, having trained in the discipline itself, along with his evasive martial arts movements and Bruce Lee-style footwork. He went on to defend the title 10 times, with no one being able to last past the second round, and is known today as the father of modern kickboxing. Lee Faulkner just ran with this idea, founded the US kickboxing 
Kickboxing Association and his goal was to get full-time professionally paid athletes and tons of people opposed it publicly, believing it degraded the sport, but also because they realised a lot of their deadly techniques were, well, they were pretty useless in an actual fight. The competitions he organised comprised of four three-minute rounds, leg kicks, crescent kicks and roundhouses to the head, elbows and knees were all allowed. Other kickboxing events were held throughout the US, but, well, most of them were karate guys wearing gloves and almost none of them could box, which just meant the sport was kind of terrible to watch and looked super amateurish. On the one hand, Joe Lewis was destroying everybody and had no competition, and everyone else was just shit, basically. It got absolutely blasted by the media, who said kickboxing is as close to resembling its silent counterpart as a grape is to wine. There's a hell of a lot of work to be done before you can achieve that end result. By the end of the year, American kickboxing had pretty much died out. In a last-ditch effort, Lee made a deal with Japanese promoters to bring kickboxing videotapes back to America. At the time, kickboxing was the biggest sport in Japan. It showed three times a week on national television. And although Lee got some playtime on KTLA Channel 5 in LA, out of nowhere, the California State Athletic Commission stepped in, altered the rules, the telecasts were discontinued, and when Lee tried to host another event, he was told it was now banned in the state of California. So Lee merged his US Kickboxing Association internationally with the Japanese Federation, but just one year after the first historic kickboxing fight in US history, the sport had died out almost completely. What happened next? Well, Chapter 4, Full Contact Karate professional karate it'll knock you out a look at a new pro sport So for the next few years, early 70s America was dominated by the Bruce Lee craze. Okay, Kung Fu was badass and you could beat like 10 guys at once, apparently. But the desire for full contact competition hadn't gone away and what would form next would provide a platform for many future MMA coaches laying the foundations of kickboxing as we know it. Joe Lewis teamed up with a man named Tom Tenenbaum to create a new type of realistic martial arts competition. They named it Full Contact Karate. They enlisted the services of Mike Anderson, who at the time had been crucial in helping orchestrate the first professional championships, and along with Don and Judy Queen, in 1974 they formed a new organization, the PKA, the Professional Karate Association. Yeah, the name kickboxing still had some pretty negative connotations at this time based on the failed American kickboxing experiment, but all the other traditional karate schools begged them to change the name so it would distance itself from their schools of thought. But the reality was, without the word karate in the title, it would never have gotten off of the ground in the first place. They held their first championships in the Los Angeles Sports Arena and it was picked up by ABC's Wide World of Entertainment. It even did $50,000 at the gate. 14 fighters took part and each of the winners were paid three grand. That ends it, the first World Professional Karate Championship which has been dedicated to the late great martial artist Mr. Bruce Lee. After the initial success of the PKA, even more leagues formed across America, each with their own variations in rules, sanctioning their own events, and with their own champions, all fighting for TV exposure. But one of the craziest and most badass events of all time was without a doubt the World Series of Martial Arts. And guys, it really was kind of the first ever Ultimate Fighting Championship. It was created by Hawaiian Tommy Lee, who wanted to put on a competition like no other. In July 1974, he gathered 58 martial artists from around the world, including boxers, wrestlers, street fighters, sumo 
sumo guys, kempo guys, Chinese kung fu, even Muay Thai fighters, to compete in a full contact tournament. The rules allowed everything, including elbows, knees, headbutts, and takedowns, but the fights would be returned to the feet. They wore gloves and padding on their feet, and after just the first day, they were down to 16 competitors. The day after, six more had pulled out due to injuries, not surprising at all, really, and it was the lightweight, full contact karate and kickboxing star, Benny the Jet Uquides, who took home the championships, beating the six foot one heavyweight Dana Goodson in the finals. He took home five grand, and although the event was a financial fiasco, they continued to put on about five more shows. But the World Series of Martial Arts kind of fizzled out from there. Shout out as well to Benny the Jet for literally my favorite fight scene of all time with Jackie Chan. The PKA, however, didn't fizzle out. In fact, it boomed in popularity. They changed a few rules and started having fights in a boxing ring because people kept falling out of the karate one. Rick Rufus would also compete in the PKA and win the middleweight world title, developing his kickboxing skills alongside his brother Duke, who would go on to establish the famous Rufus Sports Academy in Milwaukee, teaching his family kickboxing to a whole host of MMA talent, including the Pettis brothers, Jens Pulver, Tyron Woodley, Bilal Muhammad, Paul Felder, basically anyone out of that area. At the same time, Core Emmers, a Dutch karate black belt, also began competing in full contact karate. The experience he gained in his career he would eventually take back to Holland where he founded the Hemmers Gym and then Golden Glory and was responsible for training the likes of Bas Rutten, Heath Herring, Alistair Overeem and Semi Schult. Don't worry, we're going to get to the origins of Dutch kickboxing specifically in a minute, but PKA really was the first major kickboxing promotion and it advanced the sport in a massive way. In September 1975, on the massive event that was Muhammad Ali vs. Joe Fraser, the thriller in Manila, the undercard featured a full-contact karate fight between Jeff Smith and Karim Alar. It was seen on CCTV by an estimated 50 million people, but it didn't exactly give full-contact karate the boost it needed. The PKA would run well into the 80s, but one thing they didn't allow was leg kicks, which meant everyone in Asia dismissed it and didn't want to take part, as they were pretty effective in a fight, wouldn't you say? In fact, Rick Rufus would find this out firsthand when a special rules bout was set up with Chang Puek Kiat Songrit in a fight that truly showcased the limitations of the American rule set, where the Thai fighter used leg kicks to dominate the contest and finish Rick in the fifth round. And Rufus is hurt now. Yeah, he's hurt he tried to spin fist there and he got kicked, I think. His legs are killing him at the moment. Well, he knows uh, clearly, and the referee, Tom Schlesinger, has stopped this fight, and probably that's a very smart thing to do. By 1967, PKA had started to slow down somewhat, and in September, the California Athletic Commission stepped in and passed a law, meaning it was now under their jurisdiction. So for the first time ever, there was a government-regulating body, and they established rules and procedures for all events held in the state. But the promoters started to decline. The naming conventions and all the various championships conflicted with each other, and infighting and lawsuits amongst the promoters, and even against companies like ABC that had aired certain fights started pouring in, and so by the end of the year, it was just a handful of promotions putting on fights. That takes us into chapter five, kickboxing goes international. Thank you, Bobby. Well, tonight it is a kickboxing spectacular. 
At the same time in 1976, two very sensible men, Howard Hansen and Benny's brother Arnold, were able to recognize the flaws in the organization and develop a new governing body that would take the sport to an international level. Together they formed the WKA, the World Karate Association. Yeah, still not kickboxing, although they do change the name later. It was the first and now oldest non-profit governing body to use an independent rating system to rank the fighters, not just in the US, but worldwide, including Europe and Asia, because guess what? Their rule set allowed leg kicks. Boom! The WKA exploded, they secured network broadcasts in the US as well as Asia, and they only showcased and allowed the highest level of competition. Fighters like Croatian Branko Sitakic would rise in popularity and win world titles, paving the way and later coaching the infamous Mirko Krokop. Years later, Maurice Smith would win the heavyweight title, defend it multiple times, and would eventually put kickboxing on the map in MMA when he became the first man to beat Mark Coleman in a legendary upset and become the second ever UFC heavyweight champion. But on the other side of the world, in 1978, just two years after the WKA was formed, two Dutch men would change the face of martial arts in Europe forever. I always find the spiritual thing and the meditation and the Zen thing behind karate or fighting sports is usually the phonies, mostly. First, we have to jump back a bit further to a Dutchman named John Blooming. He had served in Korea in the 50s during the war, received an injury, and was transferred to Japan, where he encountered the Asian martial arts. He took what he learned back to Holland and opened a school where he trained many students, including two men, Jan Plas and Tom Harrink. So back to 1978, and Jan and Tom follow in their master's footsteps and make their own journeys to Japan. But what was the biggest sport in the country at this time? That's right, kickboxing. Plas studied under Kenji Kurosaki at the famous Majiro Gym. He had competed in really what was the first kickboxing event, that 3 vs 3 karate vs Muay Thai competition. Plas came back to Holland and opened his own Majiro gym. Tom also made the trip to Thailand as well as Japan, and together they formed the NKBB, the Dutch Kickboxing Association. Together they would coach Dutch pioneers like Rob Kamen, Ernesto Hoost, and even the legendary Henry Hooft. They would in turn go on to train the likes of Joanna Jacek, Pat Barry, Tyrone Spong, and even Fedor Emelianenko. In 1984, Cor Hemmers would open the Hemmers gym and Golden Glory, where he transformed the face of MMA striking. I saw MMA and I said, you know, the striking part of MMA is so bad, it's, it's, it's really below C-class level. And that was true. Henry would of course eventually travel to the US where he's trained an endless list of MMA champions, including Kamaru Usman, Luke Rockhold, Michael Chandler, Vitor Belfort, Robbie Lawler, and Eddie Alvarez. He's taken amazing grapplers and completely transformed them into well-rounded MMA fighters. And honestly, you have to give props to John Blooming, whose legacy continues to affect the sport to this day. When I see those martial art movies, of course it's fun to watch. You see beautiful techniques, but doesn't work that way. Chapter 6 The Fall of Japanese Kickboxing So now it's 1981. For the last 10 years in Japan, it's all been about that kickboxing life. It had grown to be the most popular sport in the country. Towards the end of the 70s, though, things had started to dry up, but everything completely fell apart in 81. In a story that probably won't surprise many of you, given Japan's history with combat sports, a scandal swept the nation when kickboxing was linked with, you guessed it, the world of organized crime. It completely lost public favor, and the WKB and Katogi Kickboxing League completely dissolved. The long-established All Japan Kickboxing Association had no choice but to merge themselves with the WKA and it became the only sanctioning body for kickboxing in the country. But another organization formed from the ashes. Ah! 
a man named Kazuyoshi Ishii, who'd been running his own dojo in Osaka for many years, created Saido Kakan, a league set up to showcase the best of stand-up martial arts in the world. Across the next few years, he began promoting full-contact karate tournaments to great success. And in 1991, he hosted the first karate World Cup in Japan. Now, I know what you're thinking. Weren't we just getting on to kickboxing? Well, stay with me here because it gets a little bit wild. It was an open weight tournament in a boxing ring, and if a winner wasn't decided in the opening round with karate rules, the contestants would lace up the boxing gloves and strikes to the face were then allowed for the subsequent rounds. And get this, if a winner still wasn't decided, they would move on to Tamishiwari. Hey! Which is basically, how many tiles can you smash? Or as we all know it, test your might from Mortal Kombat. These new rules brought in future MMA fighters like Gerard Gordeau, who'd go on to compete and reach the finals in the first ever UFC event. Patrick Smith, who'd also compete in several of the early UFC shows. And even Duke Rufus would take part, who, as I've already mentioned, would create an entire MMA legacy of his own. Eventually though, in 1993, Ishii decided he wanted to do a promotion solely dedicated to the art of kickboxing. He named it K1, and it became the biggest kickboxing organization in the history of the sport. Sons of future MMA stars would cut their teeth in this organization, including Mark Hunt, Mirko Krokop, and Alistair Overeem. Dewey Cooper competed. He'd go on to be a striking coach at Extreme Couture and train many UFC stars, including Francis Ngannou. Guys like New Zealander Doug Vinnie would also take part. He'd go on to establish the famous city kickboxing alongside Eugene Behrman, who, yeah, would combine their knowledge to train some of the greatest fighters that would ever grace a UFC octagon. But there is one final twist to the tale that helps sow the roots of MMA as we know it today. Chapter 7, The ISKA so by 1985 in America, the PKA as we knew it had started to run into a slew of financial troubles. Five of the biggest kickboxing promoters in the US got together with several of the PKA execs who were ready to form a new organization, the ISKA, the International Sport Karate Association. One of those execs just happened to be a man named Scott Coker. It's him. He do this shit. who'd also in the same year found Strikeforce, which yes, believe it or not, began life as a kickboxing promotion before eventually becoming the biggest rival promotion to the UFC in America. He's still influencing the sport for his work in Bellator, and it all goes back to kickboxing. The ISKA also secured international TV coverage and united several organizations worldwide. It became the new proving ground, but it also fostered the striking careers of future legends like Mike Winklejohn. I'm fighting Johnny Davis tonight. He's uh... Um, a very good fighter. He's very skilled, very talented. It's an honor just to, to fight him. Yep, that's actually him, believe it or not. And he'd go on to work with Greg Jackson and train the likes of John Jones, Donald Cerrone, Carlos Condit, Holly Holm. I mean, the list goes on, really. We've probably got about 30 fighters living here right now. we got them coming from around the world. Australia, England, London, uh, Kazakhstan. Ray Sefo won the Cruiserweight and Super Cruiserweight world titles. He was trained by the legendary Lolo Hamuli, who founded the Balmoral League Guard Gym and was truly instrumental in the development of kickboxing in Oceania. He would go on to train Mark Hunt, Doug Vinny, and Eugene Behrman. And yeah, I've already talked about the legacy they created together. Ray would even later become the president of the World Series of Fighting, which, if you don't know, is 
is now the PFL and yeah, he's still the president. Two of the major promotions outside of the UFC and they both came from kickboxing. Someone else who actually trained under Scott Coker and is perhaps one of the most important figures in the early development of MMA as a sport was two-time ISKA champion Javier Mendez. That's right, he then formed the American Kickboxing Academy, the first real MMA super gym as he helped Frank Shamrock through his historic UFC winning streak and championship reign. From there, he'd literally train a list of goats like Cain Velasquez, Daniel Cormier, BJ Penn, and even Habib Namagamadoff, all who came through AKA learning their kickboxing skills from one of the greatest to ever do it. But let's just jump back to Japan one more time because surprise, surprise, after founding K1 and running it successfully for a number of years, Ishii was found guilty of uh, money laundering. That's when FEG was created, the fighting entertainment group, as a holding company for K1. They then acquired MMA promotions such as Dream, Rumble on the Rock, and Heroes, but it wasn't long before they were also sinking. French hedge fund manager and combat sports fan Pierre Endurant would step in and offer to buy them out. When they said no, he founded the Glory World Series, a collection of promotions and gyms that had worked with K1 and brought them together under one banner. It would eventually just become Glory, the promotion in which Alex Pereira would become the first man to hold two world titles at the same time. Before transitioning to MMA and flipping the world on its head. Through the years, it's easy to see that not unlike MMA itself, kickboxing was created really by those people who had a desire to test themselves in full contact fights. Not just that, but to find what was actually effective, to take what was traditional, remove what didn't work, find its limitations, and then apply their skill set to actual combat. In this way, I actually see kickboxing and MMA forever linked, forever joined by their histories and the fighters themselves that dared to discover more about the nature of true competition. Kickboxing has had far more of an impact on the sport of MMA today than I think most people would probably have ever imagined. Of course, we can't forget that the origins of the UFC began with the Gracies and their desire to show the dominance of BJJ and how effective the grappling arts were. But everything goes back to the idea and the philosophy of what works and what doesn't. And the history of kickboxing is filled with constant discovery and evolution that has led us to where we are today.